0: Hey everybody, this is episode number 150 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas. This time recording on a Sunday for a Monday release as we are in the middle of worlds. We also had Berlin this past weekend. There was a lot going on in the world of track and field. And so I'm a little behind in getting this out as I'm just trying to keep up, but I'm excited for this episode today. And it's just going to be me. I've got some current events to talk through, and then I want to talk a little bit about a topic that I think is particularly relevant right now, which is mental tips and tricks for race day, because we've got a lot of races coming with the fall marathon calendar about to get into full swing, basically kicked off with Berlin this weekend, and we've got Twin Cities and Chicago and New York and Marine Corps and all the rest coming up very shortly. And whether you're doing a marathon or a half marathon or perhaps another distance race, I think that these mental tips and tricks will be relevant for you. And some of them we've talked about on the podcast, of course, before, but maybe not all in one place. So I wanted to get this all consolidated in one place for you so that you have it as a reference point to hopefully get and smash your goals leading up to your races coming up soon. Before we get there, though, of course, got some current events to talk about, and if you haven't already check about, checked out our World Championship preview, that went up on Wednesday. I recorded that with JoJo Gretchel, and I'll also have another episode coming out midweek this week that will talk about the second half of the World Champs, as well as recap the first half. We'll do a little bit of that today, just calling out a few things from the the beginning of Worlds, but we'll spend more time on that with JoJo in my midweek episode. First current event we've got to talk about is the Boston standards and the Boston registration process. It was announced this past week that even with the new standards, which were five minutes faster than last time, you had to still be even faster by a minute and 39 seconds in order to actually make the cutoff and get into the race, which meant that those that are under 35 as men had to run 258 and change and then those that are women had to run 328 which means that the bar keeps getting raised for Boston and I know that there are many people that are frustrated by that I've had I have a couple people that I know that were only 2 seconds off the cutoff and so just barely missed making it into next year's race and that's incredibly frustrating and I often get the question from people what do I think about this process as it stands and I think I've talked a little bit about this before but I am I'm torn on it for 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 a variety of reasons but because I do think, that on one hand, it's extremely frustrating to, to beat a standard, but then have to wait to know whether or not you can actually do the race. That's incredibly frustrating, and I hate the fact that there will be those that are overjoyed that they get their Boston qualifier that still then are disappointed at a later time when that proves to not be enough. And that is really frustrating and really devastating. And at some level, I would like it to be where if you run the standard, you get into the race. Now, on the flip side, on the other hand, the one thing I do like about the current process is that it it means that no one can coast. No one can just, if they're close to that standard, they can just cruise in and get it done as long as they're under the standard they know they're in. No. It means that if you're in that window that you have to try to fight for every second. And it has created this process, this system in a way that is continually raising the bar. And it's really crazy to me that just Boston changing their standards have almost single-handedly made American marathoners faster, and the bar just keeps getting raised, keeps getting raised every year because people know that they have to run basically a BQ minus five in order to guarantee their spot. And so everyone now is looking not just at the standard, but at the standard minus five minutes as the true standard, and then as a result... We're seeing that people are getting faster, which is kind of cool. Now, what do we do about it? There would, uh, my personal perspective is that Boston should just drop the standards to a point where they know they won't be able to fill the race at those standards. And if that means dropping in another five minutes, I think they should, Because, and then that could still open up the possibility that if you don't fill the race, that you can then let in those that might be just above the standard up to a certain threshold. And so to me, that would be perhaps a way to get a similar result in that you get people to raise the bar and try to run as fast as they can. While still guaranteeing that anybody who runs the standard as it's defined is guaranteed to get a spot in the race. I would rather see something like that take place so that you don't have someone who gets the standard disappointed then a year later, 10 months later, five months later when they actually have to go through the registration process because it's gut-wrenching. I mean, that... Five to seven days of having completed the application and then waiting to see if you made it—it it is pure turmoil for those that I've seen go through it, and then to see somebody miss it by a couple of seconds is depressing. Now, I've had, I had—I had a, somebody recently send me a really long email. That was a—that uh, was very. It was from a from a guy, and it was very politely worded and. He was making it clear that he still supports women and so forth. But there was a comment in that email that the women's standard is quote unquote softer than the men's standard as it stands. And if you look at it objectively, if you look at the IAAF age grade slash gender gender graded equivalency scales, which are established based on essentially the the level of the world record for each gender and then it scales back based on age and you can get to gender equivalent standards as well. If you look at that table, if that table is to be believed, then yes, running a three hour marathon for a man is a higher standard than running a 330 marathon for a woman and people think that's not fair. I happen to not care about that. I I think one thing about Boston is that if you if you look at the marathon, the the major marathons, Boston has one of the or is one of the most equitable in terms of gender participation. And. To me, if it takes having the standards the way they are in order to sh- ensure that you have that gen- gender equity, then so be it. And again, I don't understand why you know men should even think that's unfair. Just suck it up and go get your standard. Don't worry about the women's standard. Even if... Yes, on paper, it might be a quote-unquote softer standard or less rigorous standard. Personally, I don't care about that. And if that's what it takes to get more gender equity in Boston, then like I said, so be it. So that's my perspective on that. It might be one that's controversial or that others would disagree with, but that's where I'm at. Plus, by the way, you know, I think... It's only fair to go based on historically what has been established. So to suddenly make some bigger change in the women's standard versus the men's standard to me wouldn't exactly be fair either. So even if you were going to make a move to try to make it more, quote unquote, equitable for the men, then you would have to do it in a way that would just look unfair to women. and to be if in my opinion there are plenty of things in this world that are stacked in men's favor and if this is one of those few things that stacked in women's favor then yes thank you we need more of that frankly so that's my perspective and would love to hear from you if you disagree but That's the Boston standard. Unfortunately, if you were one minute and 38 seconds underneath the standard, you didn't make it and you have to go try again. But I would say to you, for those that are just off, first of all, you're worthy. You did get the Boston standard, so you should be proud of that. But secondly, keep working. You will get it done and you don't have to get it done by doing some sort of crazy thing like going to do a downhill marathon or doing something where the deck is just stacked in your favor. No, all you have to do is keep working, be consistent, and you'll get there. And when you do, it'll be that much sweeter as a result. So that's one thing. Second thing we have to talk about quickly is just a few things on the world champs. First of all, the Women's Marathon, as I talked about in the preview with JoJo, went off on Friday evening. It was actually at midnight in Doha because of the temperatures. And in spite of it being run at midnight, the heat index was, I think, 105 to 108 the entire time, which is absolutely insane. And there were 70 women who started. 41% of those women did not finish, including my friend of the show and, and former guest, Sasha Golish. She had to DNF just after the 20K mark, unfortunately. And I exchanged it, I exchanged texts with her after the fact. And she talked about how basically she stopped sweating about mile 10 in the race and She knew at that point that that was going to be a problem because when you start, when you stop sweating, that's a sign that there's some sort of heat related illness coming your way. She recognized those cues, did everything she could to try to, to try to fix it or get back on track. But as she told me, she knew what was coming and she basically pulled herself halfway through the race Unfortunately, So, so sorry for Sasha, but she wasn't alone. I mean, like I said, there were 41% of the women that, that dropped out. The woman who won, Ruth Cephan Gedich, who has the third fastest marathon time of all time at a 217, ended up winning in a relatively evenly paced race where she split 116 twice over and ran a 232 to pull away from Rose Chalimo, the defending champion, at the end, and Roberta Roberta Groner, the 41-year-old American, ended up in sixth place with a really impressive 238, and so we'll talk more about the actual results themselves with JoJo, the one thing for me as a fan, though, watching it, it was pretty frustrating. Not only because the competition wasn't what it could have been, what it wasn't what it could have been because of the impact of heat on the athletes, and you had athletes like Rudy Aga, who was one of the favorites, dropping early because of the temperatures. So it was less interesting to watch as a fan from a competitive standpoint, but also. I couldn't help but think that it was just wrong for the IAAF to put athletes in that situation, in that putting them in harm's way, knowing and having known for a really long time that this was going to be an issue, choosing Doha as the site of the world champs. It's just frustrating that you have a situation where these athletes are the product, and a lot of these athletes are not making a lot of money. They're doing it for the love of the sport and the love of their country. Including Roberta Groner, number six place, full-time nurse, three kids, 41 years old, not making a lot of money from running. While at the same time, the IAAF, the powers that be, the, the rich white guys who are running the show who brought this World Championships to Doha are the fat cats so to speak who are probably well compensated some would say that they were probably bribed to get the location selected have the world champs in doha so you have these rich white dudes who are sitting on the sidelines comfortable taking private jets everywhere staying in nice hotels wearing nice watches While you have these athletes who in some, in some cases are barely surviving, they're the product also putting their life at risk on the line with a one Oh five heat index for 26.2 miles, just, it's just wrong. It just feels dirty. And when I went and ran 10 miles this morning and it was 85% humidity and 80 degrees, did 10 miles. At a pace that was really easy and slow. And it was brutal. I mean it was brutal. It was not fun in the least. And I wasn't running a marathon with. Stakes on the line. And the heat index was more like 93 instead of 105. So it's frustrating as a fan. That that's the state of our sport. That time and time again. The powers that be at the IAAF or the IOC don't prioritize athletes' safety or prioritize doing things for the good of the athlete. And until the athletes take a stand against that, nothing will change. And on that topic, it was interesting... I would encourage you to check out this week's episode, episode 13 of the clean sport collective podcast where we interviewed Bonnie Ford. And she talks exactly about this in the context of clean sport, that the only way that things will change is when the athletes can organize and then stand up and perhaps do something like have a sit down on the track or have a sit down at the start of the world champs marathon and say, no, we refuse to compete until things actually change. That's the only way change will happen at that level because when you take away the product and the athletes are the product, then those rich, wealthy, white, fat cats in the in the ivory tower won't make their money and they'll have to do something. They'll have to change. But it's hard to get to that point because athletes have no way of organizing and they're coming from different countries, different events. They're pursuing individual sports, so they're There's no easy way for them to organize like you might see happen in team sports or in pro sports here in the U.S. like the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball where you have unions, player unions, you have collective bargaining agreements. So that's a little bit of a rant. But I just want you as fans to be aware of the injustice and speak out against it to the extent that you have an opportunity or call for change yourself by following along and then retweeting people that are saying things such as this to put pressure on those political bodies that are in charge, that are doing these things to the athletes, that are putting them in harm's way for their own benefit. Okay. But again, we'll talk more about Worlds. And if you haven't already tuned in, check out NBC Sports Gold. I'll be eagerly watching the women's steeplechase final that will be going off today. Last thing I wanted to talk about is, of course, the Berlin Marathon. I didn't do a proper preview of this because the world champs kind of got in the way, but Berlin Marathon went off this past weekend, and there were indeed fireworks. We had Kinesia Kinesia Bikele come back. From what many presumed to be the 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 graveyard of of elite distance runners, to quite nearly run a world record, incidentally wearing the the Nike Vaporflies, and he ran a, to a 141 to just miss Kipchoge's record by two seconds. He was two seconds off actually ran remarkably even splits throughout the race and didn't just didn't quite close as fast as Kipchoge did, even though they were slightly under Kipchoge's world record pace for much of the race. But Berlin, at the top at least, was a story of the Ethiopian athletes that, that won the day both on the men and the women's side. On the men's side, you had Bekele, of course, but he was... He was surrounded by what ended up being his countrymen as the aggressor in Burhanu Legacy, who actually made a big move about 30k to break things apart and to to blow up Bekele and his countrymen, Sisei Lima, at that, at about that point, Lima Lima and Bekele got dropped at that point, fell back a little bit but Legacy would eventually falter as he was for that next 5K running sub two-hour pace for the marathon and that ended up being too hot. And so Bekele stayed within himself, would eventually pass his countryman Legacy in a definitive move, and then he went on to set his sights on chasing that world record, and he ended up, again, just two seconds off. Like I see, ended up holding on for second in a 202.48, so still under the previous world record before it was reset by by Kipchoge. And then Lemma ended up coming in in 203.36, so those three Ethiopians swept the podium and were well ahead of fourth place Jonathan Career, who ended up in a 206.45. So really, really fast at the front. Kipchoge kind of came back from the dead, so to speak so to speak as he has dnf'd from four of his last six marathons and if you'd asked me what he was going to do at berlin i would have said that he would have done the same thing and many at 30 many thinking that he was done at 37 years old clearly proved that he was not put himself back on the map and you know put himself back in the argument for the greatest distance runner of all time having had success on the track as well as at world cross and course now at the marathon and this will definitely spark that storyline of can we get Bekele and Kipchoge on the same starting line again most of those head-to-heads that they've had before have ended up with a DNF for Bekele and so they've been underwhelming but this will definitely call for or have fans and perhaps those athletes agents call for the head-to-head between those two which will i'm sure be something that you know will will garner a significant payday or require a significant payday in order to in order to make that happen now we'll see cuz while this definitely put bekele on the map today it also sets it up for kipchoge now to come back and answer As he, in a couple of weeks on October 12th, or sometime between October 12th and October 20th, depending on weather conditions, is planning to go for his sub-two, his NES sub-two effort to try to break that two-hour barrier. And on a closed course with pacers that will be flowing in and out, so it won't be world record eligible, but it would be an opportunity to be that first man under two hours. And that would be the perfect counterpoint to Bekele's result here today. Now, on the women's side, if you look at that, you had perhaps a more interesting overall race as it came down to the the final 5K or so, but you also had you also had the Ethiopian women battling hard for the top spot here and ended up they ended up getting top 2 Shete Bikere ended up first place in two twenty fourteen as she broke her countrywoman Mari Debaba over that final couple of miles to win only by seven seconds and then Sally Chepiego from Kenya ended up in third in two twenty one oh six but Helen Tola from Ethiopia was right there too in two twenty one thirty six and fourth and then you had Sarah Hall, the big American result, where she ran a four-minute PR to to earn a two twenty-two sixteen, which is now the sixth fastest time ever by an American in the marathon, and that definitely put her name on the map and as one of the favorites for the trials coming up in February. As now, you know, right now, she has the third fastest time, third 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 fastest PR. Of those that are likely to end up racing in February, with Jordan Hasay and Amy Cragg being the other two that would have faster PRs now than Sarah Hall. Huge result for her in what was a perfectly executed race. She now has to, I think, make a decision as previously she had announced that she was going to run New York as well, and then go do the trials in February. If I were her coach, I would not allow her to run New York and I would just focus on recovery and start gearing up for the trials so as to avoid the potential injury that might come with doing too many marathons in too short of a time. If I know Ryan Hall and what Sarah has alluded to, I assume she'll be on the start line in New York as well. But as a fan, that scares me because... Frankly, I would love to see Sarah Hall make an Olympic team, and yet I think she's going to put herself at risk. I don't think there's anything to be gained from racing New York, so why would you do it if that's only going to compromise your ability to show up and, and run in February at the top of your game? But what do I know? And obviously there's going to be a payday associated with showing up showing up in New York, so that's something that... I'm sure may be a factor as well, but I would just, I would love to see her not do it so that she can be healthy and ready to run strong in Atlanta on February 29th. We will see what they decide, but if I were a betting man, I would assume that she'll be on the start line in New York and I would wager that that would be true. As we wrap up this Berlin discussion I have to give a couple shout outs to some local Austin runners and what they were able to do in Berlin. First of all our new Team Rogue assistant coach Will Nation showed up and ran a really stellar 2.15.12 to finish 42nd overall at Berlin. We also had former Rogue runner Jess Harper who's actually Canadian. She ended up 21st overall running a 235 at berlin for a for a massive pr for her and then we had team rogue athlete john armbrust secure his first sub three effort to run a 258 which really really makes me happy john's a john's a good guy who's just been working hard towards this goal for a while and to see it accomplished it just brings a smile to my face. He's certainly a hard worker, always putting his head down, doing the work. And as he s- said to me, you know, when he joined Rogue, he was a, what he called a 329, likely one and done, has-been marathoner. And so he now is a sub three marathoner because of the work that he's been able to do with us and the team that has supported and surrounded him here in Austin with team rogue. And it's just so cool to see someone like that smash their goals after doing the work for a long time now. So congrats to John on that result. Really, really inspiring to me and really impressive. And I think it's not only a win for John, but a win for our community. So there you go. That's a quick recap on Berlin. Now let's turn to our main topic. As I said, we'll be talking about mental tips and tricks for race day. And I want to try to be pretty s- practical about this. And part of that is just getting all of these tips and tricks into one place. We've, I think we've talked about them in various ways and different spots. But maybe not all in one place. And the... Other thing is, I want to remind you before we even jump in that the physical part of training is obviously important and making sure that you're physically ready for race day, which not only, of course, means executing on your training plan, but then also tapering appropriately and giving yourself the ability to have your best physical self show up at the starting line. But I do think that oftentimes... We neglect showing up with our best mental self. And I think sometimes for a variety of reasons, we don't take the time to prepare our mind while we're spending all of our time preparing our body. And in my opinion, as a, and as a coach, that's a huge miss because until both, things, both of those things are synced up, you can't be your best running self, and so I would just encourage you to make sure that as you get ready for your fall race, whatever the distance, even if it's as short as running a 5K or a mile race, I think the mental prep matters, and the elements that we're going to talk about here today will make a difference for you if you actually take the time to do the work, and as we talk about this, I'm going to split the discussion in two halves. We're going to talk first about pre-race preparation and what you can do pre-race to bring your best, sharpest mind to the starting line. And then secondly, in the second half, we'll talk about during race preparation, or not preparation, but during race execution and what you can do during the race to actually get the best out of your body on the day. So, That's the quick outline, and let's dig into it with the pre race discussions. And for each of these, I'm going to talk about four or five different elements under both the pre race and during race categories things that you can do, things that you can put into practice in order to get the most out of your race. And I would argue, in some ways, that all of these things should be stuff that you're doing. But as you listen to this, you may find that uh, only a handful of things resonate with you. And that's okay. I think about this like building your quiver of arrows. And you want to make sure you have all the arrows in the quiver that you can, including all the mental tips and tricks that you can bring to bear. So the more of those arrows you can put into the quiver, the better you will be when it go, when it's time to go into battle, if we're using a warrior analogy. And for me, that means bringing all of these arrows with me to race day. But for you, if not all of them resonate, that's okay. Pick the arrows that work for you. And maybe there are other arrows that you would put in your quiver that you found from, from other sources, other coaches, other experiences. So add those arrows into the mix with some of the things that I talk about here. But pre-race, I want to talk about four main things that I want you to do and or think through. The first one is probably the most important, and maybe I will sound like a broken record talking about it, but I just always come back to it being absolutely critical to getting your mind right for race day, and that's to, that is knowing your purpose for the day. When I say that, sometimes people roll their eyes and they think that I'm talking about some big existential question and maybe that's true, but at this stage, it's not about some big existential question. It's about more of the practical version of this question. Why do you want the goal that you have on the table? And by the way all of these things kind of assume that you have a certain goal in mind, you have a certain target race already. So we're not we're we're past the point of thinking of that. But what I want you to then do is think about why you want that goal. What's the purpose for achieving it? What does it mean to you? And try to boil that down to one thing that matters, the most important reason for wanting that goal. Sometimes it's easy to think of five or six reasons, but the hard work is actually prioritizing and figuring out which one is gonna have the most meaning to you, and picking the one thing that really matters, the one thing that you really want, and write it down, memorialize it. The some people will say, "Well, I'm struggling with that. I can't really. I don't know why I want my goal. I want it just because." Or, or they might give me a reason that just doesn't quite resonate that doesn't quite seem to have the power behind it that it should and whether or not that's your challenge what I tell people is that there's a couple different ways to think about this one would just be writing down those reasons that you know you think relate to the goal and then trying to Think about and meditate on each one of those reasons and, and pick the one that just bubbles up. But on the other hand, if you're having trouble coming up with any reasons at all or crystallizing what this thing means to you, then one exercise you can go to go through is to think about, to visualize crossing the finish line with your goal on the clock or below your goal on the clock and then think about how that would make you feel or why that moment would resonate or would mean so much to you. And sometimes thinking about that will help point to or shine a light on the reasons you want this thing. The flip side is visualize crossing the line with your goal not in hand, with the, the clock just ticking past it, And think about what that will feel like and why that will be disappointing. Because that's also another way to shine light on why you want something. Because sometimes we don't know why we want something until it's taken away. And so if you can put yourself in that place, that place of disappointment, that place of finishing, still wanting more, then sometimes it will reflect to you or show you why this meant so much. So that's one exercise to do if you're having trouble thinking about your purpose for the day. But regardless, I want you to reflect on it. And it could come in the form of just simply being able to answer or or finish the following statement, which is that I want this goal because I want to run sub four hours in the marathon because I want to qualify for the Boston marathon because I want to PR in this race because you should be able to finish that sentence for whatever your goal is. And if you can't, then you're not going to be as sharp as you could be because when the going gets tough, it's going to crumble. You won't be able to crystallize in your mind why you you should be suffering, why the pain, why you should get everything out of yourself on that day if you don't fundamentally know why you want it. So that's the first thing to do pre-race. And you may have done this work before, and now is the time to bring it back up, to dig it back up, make sure... The work that you did maybe at the beginning of the cycle to talk about your goals and why you wanted those goals, make sure it still resonates. So dig that back up. Hopefully if you've done some homework before, it's a little bit easier, but get to that thing. Why you want your goal. Second thing I want you to do. So that's number one, figure out your purpose for the day. Number two, second thing I want you to do is set your intention for the day. And this is going to sound perhaps really cheesy, but I think it's powerful because oftentimes we're our own worst enemy in that the devil on our shoulder is telling us, whether consciously or subconsciously, that we can't get the goal or that we aren't worthy of it. Or maybe it just comes in the forms of doubts where you're not sure. And of course you're not sure if you've never done something in your entire life and you don't have any evidence that you can do it, then, yeah, you're going to be unsure about whether or not you can do it. That's just natural until you have that proof, until you have that evidence. And then sometimes, even when you get that, you're going to doubt whether or not you can do it again. So it's completely normal to have those doubts. But then most of the time, people let those doubts take root and dominate that conversation in our head to the point where we don't believe. And what we need to do is actually reprogram the brain to flip the script in our head so that we're flooding in positive thoughts rather than those negative doubts that are coming in. And in order to do that, you have to reprogram that inner dialogue. How do you reprogram that inner dialogue? By just simply repetitively and repetitively. Telling yourself that you can do it. And so what does it mean by setting your intention? It means telling yourself over and over again in as many ways as possible that you can achieve your goal. Now, again, people will think this is cheesy. What I think this looks like is writing that down on a piece of paper, posting it on your bathroom mirror or maybe on your fridge or somewhere In your house, maybe in a private space, if you need it to be where you can look yourself in the mirror or say to yourself out loud every single day between now and race day, and ideally multiple times a day, what you plan to do and that you can do it. I will run under four hours at Chicago. I will run a marathon PR at New York. I will earn a Boston qualifier at Twin Cities. Basically declaring, speaking into existence, setting your intention that you will, not only that you can, but that you will achieve your goal on race day. And by repeating it to yourself, and doing that repetitively between now and race day, it will manifest it into existence by reprogramming your brain to take those those doubts, those worries, those those moments of insecurity, and it will stamp them out. And yeah, it's not going to completely get rid of them, but it will change the ratio of those negative thoughts and positive thoughts in your brain. Because I think if you don't do this, If you don't set the intention, if you don't use this positive self-talk to change your inner dialogue, then the doubts will be more significant. And if we're using percentages, you know, maybe it'd be 80-20 doubts to positive thoughts. But I believe if you set your intention and do this work, this positive self-talk, as cheesy as it may sound, telling yourself out loud into the mirror every day between now and race day that you will do something, then it'll... Flip that script, it'll switch it from eighty, you know, eighty twenty negative to positive to eighty twenty, positive to negative, and it will also give you a way to silence those inner doubts when they come because you can simply go back to that intention setting statement. And again, it sounds cheesy. And again, you may not want to do it. But my question then would be how bad do you want your goal? Because if you're too embarrassed to look yourself in the mirror and set your intention and declare into existence what you want with no when no one is watching, then how bad do you really want your goal anyway? I mean, we're talking about a, again, seemingly silly but powerful step that takes no more than 30 seconds a day, that takes no more than... Simply repeating to yourself over and over again what you intend to do, whether anyone is watching or not, it will have an impact. If you're not willing to do that, then how bad do you really want your goal anyway? So that's number two. So number one, figure out your purpose for the day. Reflect on that in these closing weeks. Two, set your intention. Declare into existence what you want. Third thing, third bit of homework is figure out your mantras this takes positive self-talk and puts it into the practical realm. And we'll talk about using these a little bit on race day itself, but you have to do the work before to figure out what these mantras should be. And by the way, this is, this is not cheesy because science tells us that these things work. And well, so what does that look like? So what do you do to set your mantras? And I like to think about two categories of mantras. The first category is what I call rhythm mantras, and I like to think about at least two mantras per category. First this category is categories, rhythm mantras. What's a mantra? It's a word, a phrase. In some iterations, it could be an image, a memory, something you mentally go back to that reminds you of what you're trying to do on the day. And I like to develop multiple mantras because you never know which one is going to resonate with you on the day. I think also if you develop multiple mantras, then it somehow opens your mind up to potentially latching on to something else on itself on race day, which is completely fine as well. But I think that most often happens when you actually have done your homework to prepare your mantras in advance. So figure out at least two rhythm mantras, a word, a phrase, an idea, a memory, something that reminds you to be relaxed, to be smooth, to find a rhythm early in your race. So the question is, what are you going to tell yourself to relax early? What are you going to tell yourself to find a rhythm? What are you going to tell yourself to be as efficient as possible early in the race so that When you get to the end, you have more energy left to fight, to finish strongly. So, what's your rhythm mantra? For me, sometimes it's been just simply smile. Simply reminding myself to smile, to enjoy the moment, is what I need to relax and to find that rhythm. But it's come in other forms As well, I think one time I used just simply be smooth, just a reminder to be smooth, and and I would visualize smooth like butter, which is a silly perhaps reference, but that was a way for me to get in that zone of burning as little energy as possible. Because again, especially for the marathon and the marathon, for the half marathon and the marathon, but also really for any race distance. Early in the race, you want to be relaxed, you want to be smooth, you want to be efficient so that you're saving your energy, your mojo, so to speak, for the end. So one category of mantras is rhythm mantras. Second category I talk about is fight mantras. So what are you going to do when the going gets tough to fight with everything you have to get that goal, to fight to the finish line? that perhaps dissociates from the pain and focuses your mind on exactly why you want your goal and so oftentimes I think these fight mantras are somehow tied back to your purpose which is why I think finding your purpose or reflecting on your purpose happens first but the fight mantras should be about focusing getting every second kicking that devil off your shoulder late in the race so that you can Get every second out of it. And for me, this has come in different forms depending on the race. I've used the mantra every second counts for a couple of races where I was really trying to get a PR just to remind myself that every second counts and that I can't for a second relax because if I did, that might cost me the PR that I knew was going to be narrowly earned if I did earn it. So that was one example, but... you have to figure out the word, the phrase, the image, because there, there have been races where I was reflecting on people that inspired me, and I was using that as a visual mantra of sorts to focus in on the task at hand. And so it can come in different forms, but either way, it has to reflect, I think, your purpose for the day, as well as what's going to resonate with you when the pressure's on, when the chips are all in, and it's time to get the goal and when The difference between you getting your goal and not might just be very, very narrow margin. So that's the third thing, mantras. Make sure you do your homework. Prepare your mantras again, two to three per category. Rhythm mantra or fight mantra and fight mantra. Fourth thing that you can do pre-race. And I would do all of these, and I do think the other three things I just talked about have to come first before you do this fourth thing. And that's, I want you to visualize the race. Start to finish. And for a long race, you don't necessarily have to do it all at once. But I do think going through the race in your mind's eye and putting your purpose in play using your mantras, again, in your mind's eye, fighting through the challenges of the race in whatever forms they may come in your mind's eye will then prepare you to then execute on race day in a way that you couldn't otherwise without having visualized the race. And again, you don't have to do this all at once, You should, but it should at least do it in chunks, and I want you to visualize every single component of the race from start to finish and, you know, in somewhat of a fast forward fashion, but don't neglect those key pieces. So, for example, the start line experience, to me that involves visualizing everything from waking up and what I'm going to do in the hotel room to get ready and get to the start line to visualizing arriving at the start line, knowing exactly where I need to go for gear check and any last minute porta a potty stops as well as getting to the corral or to the start line and where I need to be I will visualize all of those steps and not just what I will see but also what I will hear what I will smell what I will feel and process deal with the things that will come in those moments think about how you're going to deal with those pre-race nerves as you're standing there at the starting line in the corral waiting for the gun to go off Think about how you're going to feel at the start line when everyone takes off like crazy and how you're going to keep yourself in control and run your race plan as you had planned to execute it. What's it going to feel like? What's the adrenaline going to be like with all of those people around you? How are you going to hold yourself back so that you don't start too fast? What is it going to sound like? What will the crowd be like? How will you feel with the other runners around you? What would it look like to be perhaps bobbing and weaving a little bit with the initial crowds? All of those pieces and using all of your senses at least creatively and imaginatively in your head. Walk through it. And then go to the next part of the race. Think about at mile three or four finding that rhythm at marathon goal pace. And what you're going to do and say and tell yourself in order to keep it calm and keep that pace consistent and stay as relaxed and as smooth as you can. Visualize using those rhythm mantras and letting it take hold in your body and make that running feel easier than otherwise would. Think about crossing each of those timing mats or going through the water stops Getting the Gatorade and or water or noon or whatever it may be that you plan to get. Visualize doing that. Visualize executing a water stop effectively where you're able to grab what you need smoothly and without having to burn extra energy and then put it back and tossing the cup in the trash can. Visualize crossing the halfway point. And how that will feel and perhaps sending the signal back to home for those that are tracking you at home with that halfway split. And what that will feel like connecting in that moment back to those that are cheering from their computer screens. And just do that for every step of the race so that there are no surprises. And then of course for the late stages of the race think about the pains that may come and how you're going to process and deal with them practice using your mantras in your brain all the way through to the finish line of crossing that finish line with your goal well in hand. What's that going to feel like? How will you celebrate? What will you do immediately after? And I want you to take every step of the race and break it down so that you're even more ready to, to deal with whatever may come. And granted, the race won't necessarily play out exactly how you visualize it, but I promise you by visualizing it, it puts you in a better position to deal with any type of surprise or nuance that you didn't expect that comes on race day because you'll have worked that muscle, that problem-solving muscle that essentially allows you to then be more flexible and Deal with chaos as it may come because you've practiced it in a sense in your head before the race itself. So that's the fourth thing to do pre race. Visualize the race from start to finish. And for a marathon, again, it might come in smaller chunks, but I want you to at least visualize every single part of that race before you show up on the start line because then you'll have done it. You'll have done it in your mind, which means that you're more likely to do it in real life. So those are my four tips for pre-race. Now let's talk a little bit about during the race. And in some ways, I think people will find these tips are more practical, but also equally important. And again, part of those arrows in your quiver, the mental arrows in your quiver for race day. So I'm going to talk about, and we've already talked about mantras, so I won't talk about that again specifically. So I'm going to talk about another four things that you can do during the race outside of using the mantras which you know we've already kind of talked about prepping for using the mantras and obviously those will come into play on race day and using them on race day is important but I'm going to talk about some other four things you can bring to the table as well during the race the first one is a relaxation routine and I've talked about this before I've spent a little bit more time with this on the the rogue training podcast or the the podcast for the podcast training group. But I want you to and this is something you need to practice before, but I want you to during the race to have a relaxation routine where you can basically go through body part by body part and try to relax it in you know basically one body part at a time at a time so that you are completely as relaxed as possible and this is head to toe. Because the more relaxed you are in a race, the more relaxed you can be at a certain pace, the more efficient you will be in terms of energy consumed, and therefore, the more you will have at the end of the race when everything really counts. And so you need to have that relaxation routine. For me, it can come in the form of, and you could think of it also like a moving meditation, but for me, it can come in the form of I will often close my eyes if I can find a straightaway where I know I'm out of, (laughs) out of the way from others and, and not at risk of, of running, you know, into a turn or something, but find a straightaway, I will close my eyes to truly make it a moving meditation and then think through in turn every part of my body from head to my toe. I start with my face and feel, if I do have my eyes closed for parts of that, feel like the heavy eyelids kind of weighing down, relaxed over my eyes. I will then feel my face or think about my face and I will want to feel my cheeks being relaxed and bouncing like you will see if you zoom in on a sprinter on a in a 100 meter dash, you'll see their face completely relaxed and their cheeks just bouncing up and down. I want to feel that playing out. And then I will go to my shoulders and want to make sure that they're relaxed and resting comfortably and not riding up around my ears. And sometimes I think to achieve that the best way is actually to to bring your sternum up and not to actually try to bring your shoulders down or back, but just bring your sternum up, open up your chest, which then Allows those shoulders to drop into a relaxed position. And then I'll think about my arm carriage, and I'll m- want to make sure that my arms are moving and flowing freely next to me, as well as my hands are not gripping too tightly or too loosely. They want to be just very gently clenched fist. Some people have. I've, Talked to you in the past, call this, call this the sort of potato chip test on your, your hands that they used to be able to hold a potato chip lightly enough so that you don't break it, but also not too heavy so that you just smash it into your hand. So a relaxed but not too, you know, too relaxed and limp hand. And then from there, I'll go to my legs and think about my quads, and them moving freely, and it's oh, it's a weird concept to think about relaxing your legs at pace, but it really works if you think about it, they should be f- moving and flowing freely, and you shouldn't be forcing it, and then from quads down to calves down to feet, so that everything feels like it's relaxed and flowing as smoothly as possible. I will go through that routine and sometimes it might take 30 seconds. Sometimes it might take two and a half minutes of me kind of working through each of those body parts and in turn making sure each of them is relaxed. And yes, granted, I don't necessarily have my eyes closed that whole time, but I will use you know, short windows of closing my eyes to get me into that moving meditative mo- space. And then if I have to open my eyes to navigate, then I will. But I am telling you, if you can do that and find a way to stay relaxed in the race, especially early in the race, it will pay dividends later. So that's an early race and even maybe an 18 mile or a 20 mile Tactic, And I think that can be used really at any point, but I think it's more effective probably earlier when you, when it's easier to feel relaxed and, and you're not in that fight mode. I'll never forget the time it was most effective for me. It was my, not my current marathon PR, but the previous one, which I believe I ran in 2014. And I went into that race feeling strong and fit. It was a cold day in Bryan College Station, Texas, and had trouble warming up early. And I remember in the early miles executing my plan, but feeling like everything just felt too hard. And I got to mile four or five and I was at pace, but it was just felt way harder than it should have at that point. And I remember thinking very early on that, that my race might be done already. And you know, if if it's hard at mile four or five, you you know it's going to be hard at twenty two. And so I was worried that it just wasn't my day, and but then I went into this moving meditation mode where I was just went and forced myself to again body by, body part by body part become as completely relaxed as possible. As a part of that, I was also focusing on my breathing and trying to be as rhythmic as possible and sync with my steps. And I remember that gradually I could just feel the tension easing out of my body. And I think part of it also was the fact that my body was warming up. And and so it just started to gradually get easier until about mile eight when suddenly I felt like it should have felt, <laughs> like marathon pace was going to be sustainable for a really long time. and And then the rest of the race, honestly, was a dream in a sense you know it certainly got a little bit hard at the end but nothing like i'd anticipated and my hardest part of that race was actually in those first 8 miles just finding that rhythm and getting smooth as possible early and then of course your rhythm mantra can help with that these next 3 tactics i'm going to talk about i think play out more at the end when it's time to go when it gets hard and how do you fight or, or dissociate from the pain when the going gets tough. And and so these next three will come into play more there. But, you know, I think also could be used earlier depending on how they end up resonating with you. But the next one I'll talk about, and I talk about this a lot, especially with athletes here in Austin and at probably every one of the course talks I've ever done in person, but going fishing, so powerful in my opinion but it's that ability late in a race to look ahead pick out someone that you want to chase down and then go get them and so it's it's the race within the race and yes those might be anonymous players that are irrelevant for you because you're not necessarily competing with other people You might be competing with yourself, but you can use those other people around you as a carrot, as a tool. And I will even visualize the actual act of casting my rod out, putting a, a metaphorical hook in the back of somebody in front of me and then gradually reeling them in until I pass them and then pick someone else to go chase and just keep doing that. I think it, it gives you a purpose. It dissociates you from the pain you might be having. And it also ensures that you are keeping your pace honest. Because if if in a half marathon or marathon, if you're not catching people, then most likely you're slowing down yourself. And so it it's, keeps you honest with the pace, especially when you might be losing track of being able to specifically hang on to a specific pace. And so this tool of of going fishing, I think is really powerful. Personally, I like to do it in the form of just picking out a bright, uh, I'll usually pick out a bright singlet in front of me, something that's easy to focus on. You know, I don't usually care who or who is in that singlet, but it's just more about something that is eye-catching, doesn't require a lot of thinking to focus on it and will pick that bright singlet and then just go. And then once you pass that person, pick another bright singlet and then go chase them down and just keep doing that, leapfrogging all the way in. You know, I've done this for as much as four miles at the end of the race, just four miles of fishing. And it is highly, highly effective in my opinion, becomes that race within the race. And if you're not passing people again, you're probably slowing down. So use that as a tool. Another tool I like to use, and again, I've used this at different points in the race, but this one tends to be most effective, I think, late in a race is counting. Counting. Just counting. Sometimes counting 1 to 30, sometimes 1 to 60, but it gives you something to focus on. And you know, I like to say you can do anything for 30 seconds. And so what I will do late in a race is I will think to myself, just push for 30 seconds count to 30 and just push for 30 seconds. And then if you get to the end of that 30 seconds, sometimes you might even feel better. You may have found a different groove, but sometimes you're still suffering. So then count to 30 again and just tell yourself, I'm going to keep pushing 30 seconds at a time. Sometimes I'll count to a minute if if my, my mind is able to do that and what number I count to sometimes changes depending on what just happens to mean something to me on a given day but counting to 30 counting to 60 it's a way to dissociate yourself from the pain tell yourself that you're going to only push for that finite time and do it and then when you get to the end of that finite time tell yourself you're going to do that same thing again only push for another finite time because usually we can play tricks on ourselves and we usually we can tell ourselves that we can do something for just 30 seconds or just a minute. And by the way, sometimes you'll find that once you get to the end of that time frame, you actually feel better. Sometimes pushing actually puts you into a new place and no, it's not going to be easy, but you might actually find a new rhythm that actually works better for you. Most of the time I find in races like this, slowing down doesn't actually take away the pain, (laughs) and so you might as well speed up. So do it 30 seconds at a time, 60 seconds at a time. Just push for that block of time, and then when you get to the end of it, keep going. I've done this for as long as about four miles in a race, counting from one to 60 over and over again until finally I was at the finish line, and it worked for me there. Oftentimes, though, I find that this is most effective in that final mile, that final two miles, where it's it's a little bit closer. You can almost taste it, and so it doesn't feel like you get into this endless cycle of counting. But by the way, I'll also use the going fishing and counting tool interchangeably. Sometimes I'll f- switch between the two and or even use the two together. If I, if there's a bright singlet up in front of me and going to get them, but they just don't seem to be coming back fast enough, sometimes I'll say, all right, I'm going to count for a minute, see if I can narrow that gap even more until I get a little bit closer to that bright singlet ahead. So sometimes I'll use these two in tandem and it really works. The next thing, the fourth thing I'll talk about in the race is just knowing your course and using the milestones that you have as a tool. This is something that I always do. I always find a way to use landmarks at the end of a race to help me get to the finish line and i've I've used this effectively for a five mile race where I knew I'd be competing with others, and I ended up in the looking at the final half mile of the race, and in that case, there were these light poles that were going up a hill that started about a half mile out. And I knew that that was going to be a critical point in the race. And so I counted the light poles on the hill, knowing that if I could get to that hill and then just tell myself to push from light pole to light pole, and I counted how many there were and I counted down from, I think there were nine of them, nine, nine, eight, seven, all the way through to get to the top of the hill, it allowed me to dissociate from the pain and just give myself some landmarks, some milestones to push towards. I did it in Houston. When I PR'd in January, 2018 in Houston, you run across downtown at the end. You basically take a left turn. Once you get into downtown and take a right turn, and then it's almost a straight shot all the way across downtown until you get to that finish line at the convention center. And I knew that There were lights at essentially every cross street going across downtown, and so I wanted to count those street lights. So in the days before, I went to Google Maps and I just counted the streets once I entered downtown so that I knew, I think there were 12, if I'm remembering correctly, I knew that I had 12 lights to get through in order to get to that finish line. And I told myself that I wanted to just push it every single one of those lights. And I did, and ultimately, my fastest mile in that race was my last mile because of it, so you can use your landmarks, and I think part of this is also just being familiar with what you're gonna know what 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 you're gonna see, how the course is gonna play out, and I think particularly in those final miles, you want to as much as possible make it familiar in some way and use your available landmarks, whether they be light poles or street lights or something else to give you a carrot, to give you something to focus on that's shorter than the finish line. Because sometimes focusing on the finish line is too hard, too far away. feels like it'll never get there, but if you can find a shorter landmark to focus on that might have subsequent landmarks behind it and basically give you that opportunity to chunk up the finish of the race into smaller bits, and then just tell yourself you can get through that one bit, pushing as hard as you can, and then you get to the next one and the next one until eventually you're there, and goal will be in hand and so again, all three of those things that I just mentioned are incredibly practical, and they're 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 tools that I use in probably every single race I do from five k to marathon because they just for me work now. I would encourage you to practice them in a workout. I would encourage you to practice them in maybe prep races or just go and put them to use on race day and see how they work for you. And you may find that all of them work for you in some way or another. You may find that one of them only works for you and that's okay. Pick what works for you, what seems to resonate and put it to work. But what's not okay is not having these tools ready for you because Believe me, at the end of this race, for you, whether it's a half, a full, a 5K, a 10K, you're going to have mental demons on your shoulder, and you've got to have a way to kick them off. And yes, it's about all the physical preparation you've done to get to this point, but it's also about how you execute mentally. It just matters. It makes a difference. So bring a full quiver to the battle. Think about the tools you're going to put to use. I just gave you eight. And again, maybe not all will resonate with you and that's okay. I think you could put all eight to use and be in a better place. But if that's not you, if not all of them resonate, that's fine. Pick the three or the four or the six that do seem to resonate and do something with them because it will make a difference between not getting the goal and getting the goal. And there you go. Those are the mental tools that I use. Hopefully that was helpful for you. I would love to hear stories about you putting these to work and how it worked for you or didn't work for you. And and or maybe about some that got their goals because of putting some of these things to work. That would be really powerful. And that's it. Otherwise, I will send you off with good and positive vibes as I hope everybody has the opportunity to to smash their goals coming up soon. Good luck to everybody racing this fall from me and from those in our world here at Rogue. So thanks for listening today. This has been episode 150 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.